Hello, friends. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch. This is your Mr. Robot Recap Podcast, brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. Over there, we have Aaron. And I'm here with my co-host, Devlin. Thank you for the introduction. So this was a really action-packed episode, huh? Yeah, there's an awful lot that happens. And I think one thing we talked about flagging for listeners, before we get into the episode, this season has had quite a lot of heavy stuff in it um, and recurrent uh, images of suicide attempts and suicidal thoughts and those sorts of things. So at the end of the Mr. Robot episode, there is a a helpline you can call if you are in the States. Uh, If you're in Canada, like we are, if you take a peek at suicidepreventionca you'll find a list of resources. You can find something that is in your community. And if you're looking for a specific help um, because of uh, some of the storylines in this show, we thought we might also include Trans Lifeline. The number is 877-330-6366. Thank you for calling out for that. I think that's, um, this season has had some really challenging subject material going on so far. Um, I think it's like, this is probably one of the most dark episodes that we've encountered so far. So I was wondering how you felt about that as we go forward in the storyline. All I keep thinking about as I was watching the episode was of find your monster and turn the key. That's perfect. I think that in this episode, we really begin to understand what the monster was that they were talking about. And I think, too, we start to see everyone's inner monster. You know, there's um, very little that the characters... Well, I shouldn't say that it is Mr. Robot. Um, I think there's less that's cloaked about the characters and their backstories now, so we understand them a little bit better. And, of course, you know, in understanding them, we also understand... Um, their darkness so we we do get a glimpse into those more sinister parts of the characters that we care about right and um for the opposite case we have a very sinister character here who we have some difficulty uh caring about vera introduces this episode's um the sort of interrogation scene i was wondering how you felt about the story that he tells as this episode starts so i think this is just a personal taste issue but i admit i I'm not invested in the Vera character or the Vera storyline. Yeah, I could say that too. I feel like I've always been saying that the um, Ray storyline has been my least favorite. And Vera, I, I see some similarities in the way that um, the storyline plays out versus the way that the Ray storyline had played out. I think that um, correspondingly, like the Vera storyline is something that is going to take us to the end of the entire Mr. Robot universe. So I'm trying to figure out how um, the differences between Vera and Elliot and White Rose and all these different storylines, um, how they're going to all come into play at once as the season comes to a close. Do you know about the idea of the lumpen proletariat? Of course I do. You mean you're talking to an anarchist. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's what Vera is to me, like a sort of the underclass, but without any class consciousness. People have used the term lumpen proletariat different ways, positive and negative, over um, history. But the definition I'm working with is sort of underclass who with no political consciousness and no real desire for change or don't see the possibility of change. And I just feel like maybe that's why Vera doesn't interest me. I don't see I don't see what change she's working for. I think that's really a bit of the mystery. I mean, um, it does serve to kind of undermine his character that so far he has been determined by selling drugs, making money, kind of gaining control over the New York City drug apparatus. But um, 
behind that, we can kind of see that his motivations are in some ways similar to White Rose. We know that he has all of these um, spiritual motivations. Um, in this episode, actually, we kind of get a bit of his backstory, which is appreciated because we hadn't known so much about him before. But I think that's um, overall, like, his story has a lot more in common with the other characters than we would think at first. This uh, episode does a good job of showing us how they all relate. Well, because I think what we're building towards is a convergence where we discover that somehow all of these oppositional forces are in fact on the same side. And so I'm not, I don't have a clearly formulated theory about how I think that's going to come together, but I think you're absolutely right. What did you think of the shot where they revealed that it was Krista who was being interrogated? I think I think we could predict that just from the end of last episode. Uh, I do think Gloria Rubin is really good um, in this particular episode, and she gets a chance to shine a little bit and sort of stretch her range in the show. And so I really appreciated that part. I absolutely agree with that. I think it's like um, over the last few seasons, and especially this season, she's given a real opportunity to demonstrate how talented of an actor she is. So um, I think that, like, this is a really great way to see that she connects with us as a psychiatrist. She connects in all these other different roles. And um, after that, we're taken into uh, Todd's coffee. So I was wondering, um, what does that call back to you for? So I thought, did Ron just get bought out by some guy named Todd? Ron and Todd, like uh, in The Simpsons? (laughs) (laughs) I don't want any damn vegetables. (laughs) <laughs> it's a lie. I want all the vegetables. Are you going to marry a carrot? Yes. Yes, I've been saying it for years. <laughs> she said she was going to marry a carrot. She admitted it. Uh, I love this scene in Todd's Coffee. Uh, we get a special guest appearance. Uh, I, you know, I think people were excited as soon as they saw Joey Badass in the credits. This scene establishes him as, uh, I'm going to call him Chekhov's Leon. Um, because I think, you know, he's there to sell Elliot, uh, some drugs, I think is the prevailing theory, but he's a mercenary now he's freelancing. So I do think that leaves it open to possibilities for him. Totally. I think that like they wouldn't have mentioned this if there wasn't a reason for it to come later in the story. But um, it also just made me wonder, like people don't normally have the opportunity to leave with Dark Army. And how far up in the hierarchy is Leon that he can just say that he's going to call it quits at any given time? I wanted to ask you that because the only other person that we've seen leave is Irving, who was pretty high up. And so, yeah, I I wondered if you um, had thoughts about why he was able to get out. And so it sounds like we just think he's pretty high up on the food chain. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's go over to... Elliot and Darlene talking on the phone. Uh, Darlene's still squatting at Angela's apartment. Yeah, it's really sad to see them in this location. And they also have a couple shots that reflect on um, Angela and Darlene's, um, I guess, ballet shoes, let's say you would call that. And it um, sort of reminds you of the experiences that Angela and Darlene had experienced together. They had went to these um, practices before, and it's an interest that they had shared. And there was something that Darlene is kind of reaching for, but without having Angela to uh, participate with. Elliot does offer an apology, which I think a lot of people wanted to see after the last couple of weeks of his uh, shabby treatment uh, of his sister. He seems to be in pretty decent shape for a guy who rolled into a ravine and got hit by a car earlier this morning. 
Elia just has so much plot armor, and I've thought that ever since he fell off of the boardwalk in, like, the season one, episode three, or something like that. Um, it always just seems to be, like, his injuries will depend on whatever the plot necessitates. One thing that's important here is that Darlene checks that the signal modification is still running on his phone, so she can still track his location, and that seems to be in place for now. Um, and that's when Darlene um, gets a visit from someone that she would probably like to see, but probably not under these circumstances. Now, I wanted to ask you, do you think the, does the Domlene storyline feel too much like fan service to you? <laughs> it definitely has potential for that. And I can kind of see like, depending on which direction they take it, it could end up being um, much more fan service than is necessary. Um, I kind of feel like Esmail has so far, written all these stories in advance so it's kind of hard to take those and just, um adapt them towards what the fans are expecting to happen with the um dominique and uh, darlene shot i thought there was some really great cinematography where they're kind of showing that darlene is leaving angela's uh, bedroom and then she walks in and she sees that uh dominique is pointing a gun out there so I was kind of wondering, like, what did you think when you saw that this shot was expanded and you can see the greater context that was going into it? So I don't pick up as much on those sorts of visual cues, I don't think, as you do. But I think we knew that the reunion had to come. I think what caught me by surprise was that Dom had walked in uh, with her, her sidearm drawn. So she's pointing her gun at Darlene when she greets her. Right, and Darlene also, she kind of knows her trigger discipline as a trained FBI agent, and when she is pointing her gun at Darlene, she does have her finger on the trigger, and whenever a person who is trained with firearms has their finger on the trigger, what they're intending to do is um, destroy whatever is in front of the gun. So I think that with Darlene, as somebody um, who's kind of facing down the barrel in a literal sense right now, um, Dom is making the conscious choice to decide um, what her fate is going to be. I think Dom has some regret about being there and being in that situation, and she tells Darlene that she should have just kept driving, but she hasn't. Now they're stuck in it together, and she's got to update the Dark Army. Janice is so just sinister, and to be honest, her sort of sweetest pie expressions almost make her more terrifying to me. I certainly love that because, like, there's something that's so frightening to somebody who tries to seem so not frightening. And um, what was the name of this dog that she's um, Texas or meeting? It seems like they're actually going to be recurring over. Yeah, this it, was it Beatrice or Patricia? Yeah, yeah, something like she's that. She's working on her actively. Uh, she's looking pretty good, actually. She's also listening to the same podcast as she was in that past episode. This is um. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, and the series that she's listening to is called Prophets of Doom. Thank you. I wanted to ask you if you recognized it. Well, I think that there's something that comes up that's pretty, um, uh, it's indicative of some foreshadowing here. When you're looking back at the frame that has um, Janice's face fully like in the magnifying glass, what the podcast talks about is... Um, some people dying in some very gruesome ways. So sort of like how um, Krista's boyfriend, Jason, had had that um, the gun emoji that might have signified some kind of foreshadowing for that character. 
Uh, Janice is also doing this here. They have the magnifying glass that's showing us a really big close-up of her face, and the podcast that she's listening to at that time is telling us that somebody is about to die. Should we cut over to Elliot trying to place a normal human Starbucks order? <laughs> I guess we should. It's lucky that he had such an ordinary Starbucks name to spell, because I don't think anybody has spelled my name right so far. <laughs> no, in fact, I got a cup the other day that said Eric on it. Uh, the traditional white woman's name of Eric. <laughs> so what you need to do is take every incorrect Starbucks name that somebody gives you and then use that for your next Starbucks order. <laughs> I call this process um, purple venti dishwasher. <laughs> and um, you can kind of just feed back in the Starbucks names that you get until you get something. That's really I hilarious. love this. Um, yeah, so this next scene that we find that was not so hilarious. It's actually, I feel... One of the most challenging scenes that we've um, found in Mr. Robot so far. So we do find Olivia again. She is coming back into the series. And I wanted to uh, pass the mic back to you to talk about that. I think you're right that this is the maybe the most challenging scene for us. And I was trying to think about why I felt that way about it. Um, we've already talked about this season. We have a shift in how we feel about Elliot. Because... We now don't have his internal monologue. We don't have his rationale or um, any sense of his intention. So we can only judge by his actions. So we're judging based on that alone. And I think, you know, we know that he'll go to certain extremes um, and then he's not afraid to do that. But I think it's especially disturbing for us because we don't think of him as someone who would make a woman feel afraid in her home or someone who would drug someone without their consent. So Mr. Robot has a good monologue about crossing lines at some point in the show and the feeling of dread that you get when you cross a limit that you never even really thought about being there. And I think Elliot is really over his limit. And we're going to see some parallels between him and Dom in this episode because they both talk about doing these desperate things that are against their moral codes because they are running out of time. That's really a perfect comparison to make. And I think that they do try and draw some correlations between how Elliot interacts with Olivia and how Dom interacts with um, Dirty. It is really sad to see because um, Olivia, we know this is somebody who actually cares about Elliot. There's somebody who's kind of been unintentionally roped into the scheme that Elliot has been planning all along. But um, it kind of goes to show you that I feel like this is one of the very first scenes where Elliot is realizing that he is the villain in this whole situation. And that um, there are some kind of circumstances where he is willing to cross that line from what he thought was something virtuous into something that is actually villainous. Can I ask a question about it? Yeah. Do you think it would be fair to draw a parallel between what Elliot does to Olivia and what Darlene does to Dom. Absolutely. And also um, what Tyrell had done in that first season was also a bit of a foreshadowing bit where like they're kind of revealing that characters are willing to engage in these like pseudo romantic gestures just to further their own goals. But um, with Olivia, she's somebody who's like particularly vulnerable. And we were really hoping that Elliot would be somebody who could come in and help her when it really turns out to be the opposite. This is maybe the first time 
he's really punching down. Elliot tends to be somebody who punches up. He's trying to take out the top 1% of the 1% or take down people who um, solicit underage sex workers or, you know, he's on the side of the angels, so to speak. Um, Except this time where he, I think, kind of makes a half-hearted attempt at trying to persuade her with a bunch of political rhetoric, which frankly would probably be terrifying if some man you barely knew barged into your apartment and started spouting off conspiracy theories about massacres and wars to you. Oh, yeah. Like, I feel like I would have stuck my keychain between all my fingers as soon as he started talking about uh, this hacking shit when he walked in the door. Yeah, it's a little much. It's a little much up front. I also have to ask myself, you know, how is he different than Vera is different? They're both holding a woman hostage to get what they want. They really are in difference. I think that that's kind of an intentional comparison that they're trying to make. I wonder if by the end of the series, Elliot will realize that he is just as much of a villain as Vera is. Ooh, ooh, that's going to sting for all, for all of us. <laughs> but let's maybe talk about White Rose for a minute. We get pretty limited White Rose time in this episode, but it's interesting. Yeah, there's not a lot of it, but I think it really speaks a lot to the mystery that has surrounded White Rose as far as the series has went. Um, I think that they're both speaking, um, them both being White Rose and um, Wing Shu, they're speaking in front of like a, a whiteboard or some other kind of screen where all of the formulas in here are discussing um, quantum mechanics. They also have a kind of rudimentary description of the um, double slit experiment, which is a kind of foundational experiment for the basis of quantum mechanics. Like, uh, I'm not going to say that I'm some kind of like quantum physicist, but you should read up on that if it's something that you're interested in. I think that what this scene is supposed to demonstrate is that um, White Rose motivations are actually grounded in the reality of quantum physics, and they're not just kind of some kind of like uh, sci-fi or metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. Do any of those equations make any sense to you, or can you draw any connection to White Rose's project? No, absolutely not. Me either. It's all right. And I mean, I think that like um, at this point also, they're going to try and kind of create a bunch of red herrings that make it more difficult for us to figure out what the ultimate conclusion is. Um I don't know how much this relates to what is going on on the screen here or how much it relates to the conclusion of the series, but um, there is a matter that quantum computing can kind of erase encryption systems that have existed for the past uh, 10, 20, or 30 years. So I could figure that um, even if White Rose isn't invested in parallel universes, they could still use the concepts of quantum um, cryptography to kind of gain control over the universe that they're in by decrypting everybody else's uh, communication. Did you feel that Wang Shu had escalated her attempts to take control of the situation? Yeah, but that, se- that kind of seems like her bread and butter <laughs> at this point. I, I feel like every scene she's had has been doing that. She's still really interested in killing Elliot for a reason that is unclear to me. I think the most intriguing line in this episode, or one of them anyway, for me, is when White Rose says that Elliot should be brought in because it's time he learned they're on the same side. And I'm dying to know how White Rose could rationalize that statement. I do really love that line, but it feels like it's something that they had just waited until this point in the series to deploy. And now they're like near the end of the season, so they're going to try and bring everybody into one place where they can just explain the motivation for the story from the very beginning to the end. 
Um, I'm really hoping that they don't just like take this opportunity to bring in Elliot and then spell out the story to him personally. This show doesn't do a lot of heavy handed expository kind of stuff. And so I hope this won't be an exception to that. But I am curious how they might be aligned because I think surprising people have become aligned uh, as we move through the story of these characters. Right. There's kind of a lot of friction between who becomes aligned and who ultimately has to sacrifice the relationships that they built up over this series. So I think the next thing that we see is um, Dom and Darlene. And um, it's a bit of a difficult situation. Dom has been asked to kill Darlene within a time limit of one hour. What do you think of Carly Chaikin and Grace Cover's performance in this episode? <laughs> I think I would like to add a little bit to that once we get later into the episode, but I do really appreciate Carly Chaikin, and this is like a season that has really given her an opportunity to demonstrate the full range of performance that she has. So all of these scenes are absolutely fantastic, but as far as the character development goes, um, there's just a little more that comes up later. Absolutely. Dom has her orders, and so you can see that she's reluctant, and then she's vicious. And what really surprises me about it is when she orders Darlene onto her knees, because I thought if she's going to execute her in that apartment, that's kind of a humiliating, depersonalizing way to do it. And so I was surprised for her to give Darlene that order. It's definitely a new way that we start to see uh, Dominique, because so far she's always been such a kind and pragmatic character. This is a place where we see her motivations questions, and we see that the risk of her family dying is enough for her to go over the edge, and now she's starting to threaten Darlene in some pretty extreme ways. This is also where we start to see her, and she says it multiple times in the episode, um, talk about, you know, there isn't enough time, I'm running out of time. And so that kind of links back to to the Elliot story, um, Darlene is calling Dominique by her name. And that really is kind of a gut punch. I feel like in the other episodes, she's always pretty, I don't know, just uh, like silly with her or like calling her dude or like, you know, so it, and even, you know, when, um, when she's got the gun to her head and she's saying, you know, you're a good person, you don't be sorry, all those things like this whole all of these scenes I think are really impactful that's not a word but we'll um, use it as one for now <laughs> it's close enough I feel like these scenes are really challenging because um it's a kind of conflict between characters who so far we are used to um like getting along together and there is also like the especially demeaning place that Dom with Sterling in like you had mentioned but a kind of thing that I wonder is, um, do you feel like Darlene is um, kind of taking advantage of the situation? Or do you think that she's telling the truth with these excuses that she has? That's a really good question. Because if I think about Darlene, I know that she's an expert social engineer and she can talk her way out of any situation. I know she knows Dom well enough to manipulate her whatever way she needs to. But what I want to believe is that what she's saying is true. Um, because I think it makes the story, well, I don't know, either one makes the story compelling for me, but I'm interested to see where their affections for each other might take them because that could be obviously a real weakness, uh, but it could also be a strength for each of them. So I want to believe that she's genuine, but I did have some reservations about that. 
And that's kind of the shared team that we have when we come back to the Elliot's and Olivia storyline. Now Olivia starting to make this phone call that Elliot has demanded her, uh, that Elliot has asked her to do. Um, and she's kind of wondering, like, what what is the reason that he's asking her to do this or what motivation does she, does he have? An interesting callback here. Olivia makes some comments about how many people he's hurt and how many people have had to suffer because of him. And he uses very analogous language to that in the first episode of this season when he's begging Sam Esmail for his life, you know, talking about how many people he'd hurt and how he needs to make it right. So you do get some parallels in the language there. This is one of those bits of dialogue that really makes me think that by the end of this series, Elliot is going to be a very clear villain. I think that um, this is kind of a moment where the viewer is meant to reflect on the damage that Elliot has caused in pursuit of his goals of like an anti-capitalist, anti-corporate environment. Um, so far, he has led to the death of just about everybody in F society. He has also alienated Zarlene and created this dangerous situation between them and Dom. So I think that... Um, He's really kind of spelling his own doom here. And maybe I hope that it's not actually going to be the case, but it seems like Elliot is setting himself up for failure as far as the, the rest of the season goes. I did read an interview with Sam Esmail, and I haven't seen the movie Seven, but maybe you have? I have. It's actually um, one of my favorites. So he talks about being inspired by the movie Seven because in it the circumstances are such that at some point you were kind of rooting for the villain. Um, well, the villain in that movie was Kevin Spacey. So you really need to like double check that after a while, but yes. <laughs> oh, but is there some point where you want the villain to get what he wants? I think well, that's one of those series where the villain is kind of motivated by their own misguided ideas of what is right and wrong in the world. Um, the the movie title there, Seven, is a reference to the Seven Deadly Sins. And in that case, the serial killer kind of um, murderous people who they feel embody, uh, like greed and uh, sloth and all those other uh, disreputable traits. So you can see their motivation, which is that they're trying to improve the world by um, reducing these deadly sins that are going on within it. But by doing so, they also release some of those sins uh, themselves because they're killing people, they're threatening people, and they're really creating a dangerous environment for everybody. I think that kind of writing is so interesting. And it, it uh, applied to Terrell as well, where we develop empathy and caring for people who we might otherwise condemn. And so I think that goes to the strength of the writing and the strength of the story. But interesting, I thought that seven might've been a bit of an inspiration here. There's definitely also some um, cinema reference between this and seven. Um, the the movie seven also has some like really close and dark shots of people running up and down staircases. So you could relate that to the last episode that we had, the um, silent episode. Um, and maybe there will be even more relations that come up as the season progresses. But uh, given seven is one of my favorite movies, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that plays out here. To close out this scene, um, and so this goes back to our content warning at the beginning, um, Olivia excuses herself and tries to take her own life. And I think you know what she's going to do when she leaves the room. They had really set it up in that last scene that had the razor blades in the prescription bottle. Yeah, I think this is something that Elliot should have known about. And maybe he did uh, or didn't think it would go that far or thought he'd have time. But what I think is really interesting here 
Mr. Robot's monologues are very understated and it's easy for me to overlook them this season. But he has a monologue here about how if you've crossed a line, it means you still have lines. But once you're out of those boundaries, ahead of you is only darkness. So I think that's foreshadowing what's to come. Oh, I can definitely see that. Um, there was something that I wanted to add to um, Mr. What's monologue there when he's talking about the feeling of dread. What it made me think of was um, a book by security specialist and private investigator um, Gavin DeBecker. He has a book called um, The Gift of Fear. And what I was thinking about when they were talking about how dread is actually sometimes useful for people to have for them to realize when they've crossed the line I think that that book also talks about how like um, the gut feeling that you have about some situations is really worthwhile to look into. Like um, you can imagine if you were out in the wilds, you were hunting an animal and you're throwing a spear or something at it, you're not going to try and do like the mathematical equations in your head to figure out how to throw the spear. You're just going to use the facilities in your brain that have evolved to do that so far. And there's also this other part of your brain that has evolved when to be fearful or when to be skeptical of like the situation that you're in. And um, you can leverage that by relying on the gut feeling that you have instead of the um, rational feeling that you have. Like the emotional sentiment that somebody has is just as evolved and just as comprehensive as the rational sentiment that somebody's going to have as well. I really appreciate that because I think too, um, what's emotional is often feminized and therefore seen as not as valuable as what's logical or rational or seen as masculine. So I think that stuff is important. So to go back to the existentialists, because this is the season of existentialism, uh, Kierkegaard, um, he's a philosopher that I won't pretend to know too much about, uh, but he had a book called The Concept of Dread, um, which may have some application here. So if any listeners have read it, they might be able to share that with us. That's a great reference. I think I'd also like to call out to, um, what was it, Kim Kirk Kardashian, that Twitter account? Yes, an excellent Twitter account. Now, I guess we got to go back to the Vera storyline. As much as I would like to avoid that, I guess that it's a big part of this episode. So the first time I watched this episode, I had missed the first few minutes, so I didn't hear the setup. So when I kind of began watching it, I just heard Vera proclaiming that Krista was calling him a little bitch, and it didn't make any sense until I saw the whole thing. So I get it now. I get it. Um, what he's saying to her really is that all of his interrogation has yielded only really superficial stuff, and he wants he wants the real deal. Um, Don't you have that quote about how he says that he's only getting the ripoffs and he wants the brand name? Yeah, I want the brand name. <laughs> Um, Jason, uh, her boyfriend is at the door. Of course, they're supposed to spend Christmas day together and I'm sure he's very perplexed about what's happening. And so are we, I think that we aren't really given some uh, conclusion about what happens with him. Yeah. And I suppose maybe we'll get one next episode. I mean, I guess it's best for him to go home and be safe, but, uh, who knows? Who yeah. knows? He doesn't seem so happy about it right now, but now there isn't anybody else. That's no joke. This cuts back and forth a little bit. So Elliot patches Olivia up, and as he's kind of bandaging her, we realize that she has missed the call from her boss. And he tries to offer an apology, 
um, he doesn't get any traction with that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a little difficult to come back from a suicide attempt, I would say. Uh, she's probably not going to be willing to answer any phone calls right now. But um, but one thing that I thought was worth mentioning was that um, the person who's calling her um, was a, a reference to a, a Russian um, physicist who had a, a dangerous encounter with a particle accelerator. So I think that this is another one of those Easter eggs that is kind of... Um, pointing us toward the uh, quantum physical future. Are we all going to get our particles accelerated? But whether or not that needs to be a good thing is uh, to be determined. That's a fair question. This, I think we think that Olivia is coming around to Elliot's way of thinking when she starts to pick up on how members of the Deus group may in fact have orchestrated the massacre in which her mom was killed. So she does make the call. And I think that maybe is what persuades her. I don't think Elliot is persuading her to do anything. So she makes the call. Elliot gets what he needs. And I think a line, this is just like, you know, when Dom says, you know, live with that, die with that. And you never forget her saying it. When Olivia says, I may work for monsters, but you are one and you're the worst kind. I think that really sticks with you. Absolutely. And this is kind of the point where, um, I think that we as a viewer, maybe Elliot himself, are supposed to realize that he is really the villain here and that his motivations so far have been misguided. Um, there's one thing that I wanted to call back to you, if you give me a second, which was that um, what he's doing here is kind of like deploying a phishing attack where the link that Olivia is giving to her boss here is um, redirecting to a server that Elliot controls. So when she directs him to click this link, it's actually giving his username and password to Elliot onto his phone. And that's like the motivation that he has for this phone to go on. I see. Okay. So yeah, I wasn't really sure what was happening there, but that means he'll be able to make the transfers and carry out his plan, right? Yeah, exactly. We do feel really bad, I think, for Olivia, especially because we know Elliot has triggered a relapse for her. And so it also taps into all those undercurrents of the story about addiction and recovery Um and we just, I mean, the feeling here, I think, is just generally Elliot has done something really terrible and really perhaps even too far in pursuit of his big goal. But I don't think he would be inclined to agree with that statement. Maybe not right now, but um, I do remember we were all talking about how Olivia would end up uh, integrating into the story. And it's really sad to see that she is somebody who so far Elliot has only taken advantage of. I really thought she worked for the Dark Army. I thought she'd be taking advantage uh, rather than being in this situation. No, it seems like the opposite. So let's, I guess, go back to Krista's apartment where Jason is leaving. And this is where, so through the episode, Vera has been um, telling the you know popular Christmas fable of the bully and the little bitch. And so that's where we get to the end where... He uses the analogy of beating up the bully with a bat. And then while they're in that broken down state, um, approaching them with compassion and really seeing them. And it goes back to kind of that rhetoric that he uses about how he and Elliot are linked on a spiritual plane. And so his real goal, he says, aside from being king of New York, which is a uh, a real banger in the Newsies musical. I know some of our listeners are musicals fans. Uh, check out King of New York. Um, 
But uh, his goal is to break Elliot and build him back up. And he tells Krista that she needs to give him the kind of information that's going to do that. He needs information from Krista that's going to help him break Elliot and then build him back up like he did with this bully way back in his childhood. And so that's when Krista kind of buckles and turns over her file. And she just says the two words, Mr. Robot, to him. And it's one of those, like, mic drop moments where you can hear the music playing in the background and you can tell that's what the name of the series is. Um, I know that it's a really big moment for Krista and for Vera where they're starting to investigate Mr. Robot, but I also wonder if maybe this will be the start of the revelation for what the third altar is. Well, that's a very good question. And I also thought, is she referring Vera to Mr. Robot because she thinks Mr. Robot is capable of defending himself and Elliot against Vera, where Elliot might not be? Have you seen the preview for the next episode yet? Ooh, no, I haven't. <laughs> well, there's a bit of a spoiler in that, you could say. Excellent. I'll be sure to check that out because I, I can't help myself. Even if I think things are going to be spoilers for the show, I do look at them. <laughs> so one thing that we do know just from within this episode um krista does kind of spill the beans but um it doesn't really feel like she's actually trying to turn her back on elliot it seems like what she's trying to do is kind of to um compromise between the demands that vera is making and the safety of elliot himself i would agree with that or i don't think she throws him under the bus obviously she would have a home address and all kinds of other information about him. Um, I think she does the best to walk kind of a tightrope, given the situation she's in. And it makes you wonder why she cares about him so much, because um, she had demonstrated earlier in the season that, uh, or actually earlier in this episode even, that Elliot was threatening to her, and that she had to um, disconnect the relationship because Elliot was so dangerous. It's true, but Vera, I mean, Vera's theory about it is that she loves him in some way. And perhaps she is that kind of therapist who just cares an awful lot about her clients. I don't think she thinks they're aligned on a spiritual plane or anything. <laughs> no. And I mean, I think that, like, Vera, she got his initial idea that Krista and Elliot were together because of that um, photo that was taken by his henchman that one day. But um, as the scene kind of unfolds, we see that Kristen not only doesn't care about Elliot that much, but she has her own partner. So I wonder why El So I wonder why Vera thinks that um, Krista and Elliot are so deeply connected at this point. Maybe more will be revealed next episode, uh, which I'm worried will take place only in that apartment hostage-taking scene somehow. Why are you worried about that? Oh, no, I guess Krista's already been released. Oh, well, I mean, you could be worried for Krista, but I think that the the scenes that they've given us so far do indicate that the entire next episode will take place inside that apartment. Oh, interesting. Okay, so yeah, so my tension will continue to build. That's exactly what will happen. I really do think you're onto something about constraints because what do they say? Necessity is the mother of invention. So constraint can breed creativity. And so things like the one shot episode or the almost dialogue free episode, or even an episode shot entirely on one set, all those constraints really do force the, I think the story and the actors to work overtime to, to make it compelling. And, and it's fun to see, you know, they, they've, um, 
I think home runs with any experimental episode they've done so far. So they're coming very close to Janice's deadline of 3.30, but Darlene is still alive. And Dom is trying to persuade her just to give up Elliot to keep herself safe. And the real gut punch of this episode for me is when Darlene says, what would you do if it was your family? And Dominique says, I'm doing it. Absolutely. Because it kind of goes to show you that um, they do have similar allegiances and the places that they're coming from are more similar than they are different. It just is that there is this kind of underlying difference between the motivations of Jolene and the motivations of Dominique that take their kind of trajectories in extremely different ways. But ultimately, they do have very similar um, thoughts and methodologies. We were talking about this earlier, but I think Dominique's one of my favorite characters. I think she's a character we all care a lot about. But we kind of lose sight of the fact that she... I mean, was the enemy of F society. She's an FBI agent first and now Dark Army second. So again, I think this is a testament to good writing and good acting and maybe similar to Terrell Wellick, where I have so much sympathy and so much interest for this character that I really shouldn't. No, and it actually kind of even reflects back to when we had the um, Santiago character, because now that we have these scenes with Dom that show you the circumstances that she is in, we have to kind of go back to those scenes with Santiago and uh, reflect upon the circumstances that, me, that he might have been as well uh, in those times. I know, and I thought he was such a jerk. Do you feel like Dom is a jerk? No, I don't feel like either of them are jerks anymore. That's some great storytelling, that isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't <laughs> it? <laughs> um, it's funny how we can justify things. Um, we do get here Darlene's expression of caring for Dom, um, which I think seems reciprocated, but of course it's very difficult and very uncomfortable uh, in this scene where a criminal enterprise who wants both of them uh, dead is going to walk through the door any second. It's really hard to take Darlene seriously here, because even though I know that she might have actually those feelings for Dom, I also know that she is such a capable social engineer and that she is really trying to bargain for her life here. Um, I don't really know what to believe. No, and I think we'll probably have to wait for it to become clear to us. Dominique's been struggling with her new um, station uh, in life, and she now turns to Darlene for some help and she, she's so vulnerable in this moment. And I think Grace Gummer's acting is just phenomenal here in the situation. Sorry, in the scene where she asks Darlene to help her end her life. Yeah, absolutely. I think that like um, we know that Carly Chagan has been a really fantastic actor this season. But uh, Grace Gummer here, she really steals the show. I think that it'll be really difficult to compete with her. Just at the point where... She has her gun pressed into her stomach and she's urging Darlene to pull the trigger. Janice walks through the door, which is somehow more frightening than everything else that's happened up to this point. Um, <laughs> and uh, and Janice, it's that, oh, it's that all of her threats are delivered with a smile. Like when she says, this is going to be so painful for you. Like I, I almost can't sleep over that line. It's really so scary. But I was also thinking like, Darlene, is, she's holding a gun right now. I was kind of expecting that at some point in the scene she would just shoot Janice and that would be the end of it. Did you think so? Yeah, I thought that as soon as she walked in, that would be the end of Janice, to be honest. Almost like Marvin in Pulp Fiction. 
I don't know why I didn't think it because of course, I mean, she'd probably get shot herself, but it would be a chance to take out a relatively high level operative. And also think about how these people have so little to lose already. Like the, uh, Darlene was just about to shoot Dominic. So they are probably like willing to take these risks if they can um, at least make sure that Janice isn't going to make it out of there. So that we got to press pause on that storyline till next episode. Mr. Robot and Elliot are coming out of the subway and their thoughts are really focused on the Deus group meeting that night. Uh, what a Christmas dinner they're going to have and how I guess the plan is that they're going to hack all of the members through their phones at the meeting. Did you get that sense? Yeah, I guess so. Although it seems like it's all kind of like everything has to come into place here all at the right time. And with this Christmas storyline, we get the impression that not everything is going to fall into place. Well, no. So he gets a call from Krista and agrees to meet her at Washington Square Park. And so I'm trying to decide, is she still with Vera and he's urging her to set him up? Or is she free now and just warning him when he gets scooped up? It's difficult to think about it that way. I would imagine that for somebody as like security conscious as Elliot, he would try and hedge his bets by not exposing himself while he's trying to connect with Krista. But as we as we see um, what happens, uh, he ends up being abducted and pulled right into a car by some of Vera's henchmen. Is he put into the same trunk as Shayla? Oh, uh, I hope not. That would just be like adding insult to injury. It really would. Um, the last line in the episode that really sticks with me is that um, when they're going off to meet Krista, Mr. Robot says they're off to play the hero. But is that even who we are anymore? And I think that's really, it's nice to bring the thoughts of the listeners into some sort of clarity within the episode, because I think that's what viewers are asking themselves. Um, So I like that sort of insight that he shows. But of course, we've got a lot of questions now uh, and not a lot of answers about what's happening for next episode. Yeah, only more questions and only fewer answers. I think that like... um... I am really excited for the next episode that's going to come out. I hope that they're able to kind of um, parlay this really dense and action-packed episode into one that's even more enjoyable next week. I'm told it's commercial-free. That'll make it even better. Well, thank you so much for listening to our show today. We're very grateful for the support of listeners like you. You can find us on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Rewatch. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. Bonsoir.